Hello, my name is Ujunwa Ojemeni and welcome back to the Oxford Policy Pod. As Women's History Month comes to a close, we are reflecting on the enormous contributions that women make to the global labor force and the major achievements that have been made in recent decades on women's economic participation and inclusion. Despite this progress, women continue to face specific and acute struggles in both formal and informal sectors around the world. And many of these struggles were worsened by the COVID-19 pandemic, which hit the jobs occupied by women the hardest, while also burdening women with more unpaid care work than ever before. In this episode, we'll get to the root of these challenges and discuss the policies that will drive recovery for women worldwide. First, I'll take a deep dive into the barriers facing women in formal sectors, and then my colleague Swati Ramprasad will look at informal sectors. Now, let's dive in. Today, we'll start off by exploring the barriers women face in formal sectors of the economy around the world. And by formal sectors, we're referring to sectors which encompass all the jobs with normal hours, regular wages, and is recognized as an income source on which income tax must be paid. While it is a key feature of developed economies, formal work is also available, but to a lesser extent, throughout developing contexts. Indeed, women remain underrepresented in formal sectors with a labor force participation rate of just under 47%, compared to men at 72%. Women are often kept out of work and held back from career advancements due to the burden of care responsibilities at home. Additionally, they are often segregated in lower-paying sectors, contributing to a persistent gender wage gap that sees working women any less than working men. Now, to learn more about important topics like the gender wage gap, parental leave, and affordable childcare, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Sarah Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan is a distinguished professor and the director of the Institute for Gender and the Economy at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. She is author of the business bestseller, Creative Destruction, and more recently, the 360 degree cooperation from stakeholder trade-offs to transformation, both of which address the challenges of innovation and organizational change in our society. She frequently speaks and appears in the media on topics related to achieving a more inclusive economy. Formerly a professor at the Wharton School and a consultant for nearly a decade at McKinsey & Company in New York, she earned her PhD at MIT Sloan School of Management. Her current work focuses on applying an innovation lens to understanding the challenges for achieving gender equality and other social goods. Dr. Kaplan, welcome to the Oxford Policy Pod. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Over the past several decades in developed and developing countries, we have seen a steady uptick of women entering labor markets. In fact, this entrance of women into the labor force has been one of the strongest drivers of economic growth in many economies recently. But during the COVID-19 pandemic, many experts like yourself sounded the alarm because much of this progress is at risk. In fact, in Canada, for instance, women made up up to 70% of employment losses for all Canadians aged 25 to 64 in March 2020. So for our listeners, can you please provide a brief description of why COVID-19 posed a disproportionate threat to the economic empowerment of women and really how the economic crisis associated with COVID-19 differed in this respect than any previous economic crisis we faced? Well, thank you so much. And it's a great question that you've asked. Um, when we talk about the impact of COVID-19, of course, the first thing we want to think about is the terrible loss of life and the health impacts uh, that affected so many. But if we want to turn to the economic impacts, uh, I think here we really do have an economic recession that looks very different from any other economic recession that we would have had um, in the past. Most economic recessions tend to impact sectors that are dominated by uh, men. And in this case, the, the way that the COVID-19 pandemic affected the economy was first, it ended up leading to cuts in what we consider to be many of the women-dominated sectors. Uh, caring, cleaning, catering, we call them the five C's, caring, cleaning, catering, clerical work, and cashiering, 
retail shutting down, hospitality shutting down. And so one of the reasons that we see that there was a disproportionate loss of jobs, and particularly jobs for women in uh, racialized minorities, uh, immigrant women and the like, is because the sectors that were the most impacted by the shutdowns caused by the pandemic were sectors that were dominated by women. So that was sort of one aspect of what many have called the she session. Um, But the second aspect, of course, is that the other thing that got closed down were schools and daycare centers. And because in our society, we have this gendered notion of, you know, who should be doing care work at home, it's always been understood as sort of the woman's job. And this is true in both developed and developing economies. Uh, And, you know, even in the Canadian context where we consider that there is a lot of gender equality in assumptions around who does care work at home, it really has fallen on women. So even for women who weren't in the sectors that experienced a lot of shutdowns, they often had any any parent with uh, children at home, whether they were children who would normally be in daycare or children who would normally be in school, had dramatically increased demands on their caring responsibilities, often having to homeschool kids, help them with getting connected to remote learning to the extent that that was possible, or taking care of young children that weren't able to be in daycare. And, you know, that predominantly fell on women's shoulders, which meant that they were either having to stop working, go to part-time, uh, ramp back on the work that they were doing. Maybe if they were on some important career track, they had to get off that career track because they just didn't have enough bandwidth to be uh, accommodating the increased work at home along with the work in the workforce. And so because of those two factors, we really saw this dramatic uh, decrease in uh, uh, women's uh, employment, much higher than the decrease in men's employment. And you know, now, certainly in many contexts, we've seen that women's employment has, you know, now two years later, almost now we're entering the third year of the pandemic. Um, women's employment has caught up primarily with men's employment in terms of the numbers of women employed. But unfortunately, we don't know as much about the quality of the work. We still think that while the same numbers of women are employed, they may be employed in jobs that have fewer career prospects. They may be going part time. They may have ramp back. So the quality of work may not still be at the same levels as pre-pandemic, even though the quantity of work may be uh, the same. The other thing that I should mention is for many sectors, women have not even yet recovered. So for example, women who are single head of household, and most single head of households are run by women who have children, they are their employment is still at about 50% the level that it was in the Canadian context, at least, than it was prior to the pandemics. Also, women over the age of 55, their employment has not recovered. And we think that that may be because they have increased care responsibilities, for example, taking care of grandchildren or taking care of elders in their family. So while there has been some recovery, even though it was a slower recovery for women, there are certain kinds of women who have not been able to uh, reach the levels of employment that we saw prior to the pandemic. Thank you. Thank you so much for touching on the economic recovery and how this is uneven for men and women. Um, Now, moving on to the gender wage gap. Um, While we assume generally that this wage gap is as a result of women being paid less than men for the same work, the gap in in, in a large part also comes for women working in lower paying jobs and part-time jobs to accommodate childcare responsibilities, just like you described. Um, what would you say really are the sources of this chronic undervaluing of women's work um, beyond some of the societal issues you already mentioned? Yes. Well, it's a wonderful question because I think you're absolutely right that uh, most people think when we talk about the gender wage gap, whether it's you know 88% or 72% or 52% or whatever the gap is, certainly the gap is much higher when we talk about racialized uh, women, for example, in the United States and Canada you know, while the overall gap is about 88 cents to the dollar, uh, for Latina women, for example, it is about 52 cents on the dollar. So we have to think about this very intersectionally. Um, Most people will think that that's because women are being paid less for doing exactly the same work as men, but that's not really the primary driver. Of course, there are some spectacular cases that we see in the press of women being paid less for the exact same roles. Uh, However, 
most of what is driving the gender wage gap is, as you suggested, that women that, you know, are segregated into different kinds of work. So as I mentioned before, for example, the five C's of cashiering and caring and things like that, those are tend to be roles that we think of as women's jobs. And yet those jobs are paid less than men's jobs. So a lot of the wage gap comes from the fact that women actually work in different occupations. And this is not necessarily by choice, but because society has kind of structured those choices by our assumptions of who fits into what kind of job. Even in the high tech field, we often see examples of engineering students who graduate university and the woman engineer is channeled into user interface design and the man and engineer is channeled into coding where the coding is the higher status, higher rewarded job, even within tech, the tech sector. So we see this job segregation and occupational segregation driving a lot of the wage gap. The other thing that drives the wage gap is um, segregation by firm that a lot of, or, or by employer, I should say, that women, because of the care responsibilities uh, that you uh, that we've both been talking about, um, that women often uh, uh, look for work in firms that have better care benefits or better leave benefits or things like that, because they know that they are going to be expected to do most of the care work at home. So again, this goes back to these expectations about who should do the care- caring and the fact that um, we don't have the same expectations for men to do caring. And in fact, many times, even men who want to do caring are told by their employers that this will have a very negative impact on their careers. It will show that they are not demonstrating commitment to their job. And so many men feel pressure from their employers to not do care work. And because of the segregation of care work, that inequity inside households it means we achieve gender inequality in the economy. And so those are the primary drivers of the wage gap, not uh, as you suggested, uh, it's, uh, you know, as you rightly suggested, it's not just because women are being paid less for exactly the same jobs. Women just don't have access to the same kinds of jobs. They don't get promoted to the highest level paying jobs in our society. Certainly in the UK, the wage transparency uh, legislation that led to reporting by firms what it mainly revealed was that there are just no women in senior leadership, which are the highest paying roles. And so therefore, there are these massive wage gaps in every firm because women just don't have access to the highest paying jobs. Thank you. Thank you for very clearly explaining this. And I'm just wondering, are there policy options that we can consider to address this? Because this issue is clearly systemic and um, deeply entrenched in our society. Well, it's a wonderful question because I think that a lot of the policy options that we normally gravitate to, for example, wage transparency in Canada, we have pay equity legislation. We also have the Human Rights Code, which prevents uh, unequal pay for equal work. We have a lot of what we thought were going to be good policy tools to close the gap, and yet we still haven't closed the gap. Uh, you know, like it's been basically the same gap for the last 15 or 20 years. So while some of the policy tools that have been put in place are potentially useful, they don't really go all the way to addressing uh, the issues. And, you know, some of these tools, you know, pay transparency seems like a bright, shiny object. We'll put that in place and we think somehow that will solve the problem. And it really doesn't. What is going to solve the problem is, you know, a, a fair distribution of care work at home. Because we know that inequity, we're talking about, in this case, heterosexual couples where there's a man and a woman at home. We know that inequity at home contributes to gender inequality in society. And so until we resolve the inequity at home, we are not going to resolve this issue. What does that mean? The kinds of policies that would really work would be uh, parental leave that, uh, you know, for the second parent uh, that is equally supported by employers as parental leave for the, you know, usually the birth mother in the case where a child is being born and not adopted into a family. And so right now, if you have parental leave policies that predominantly are taken by women, you then feed into this unequal caregiving at home. And so the use it or lose it policies uh, that have been put in place, for example, in Scandinavia, we have a tiny version of it uh, in the in Canada 
uh, with a few weeks of additional leave that must be taken by the second parent or will not be received by the family. These things are going to eventually be helpful, although it should be more equalized. And we need, that's on the policy front, but that we also need corporate policy, employer policy to support that so that when that policy is available, that men are equally encouraged to take advantage of it. Because right now, uh, I think we think in society, well, women have to take advantage of those policies because they're the primary caregivers, but we pressure men not to. And I see this all the time in the Canadian context. Young men say, I want to take my parental leave, but my employer is telling me that this is going to take me off the partner track or this is going to take me off the promotion track. So we need not only government policies that put in place support for equal parental leave, but we need corporate policies that support parental leave for all parents at, at equal levels. And we also need, and we found this through the pandemic, that we can redesign a lot of work to be more flexible. And we need to put, put in place those policies permanently in a way that is universally appealing so that they don't become gendered. Because any policy that is predominantly taken advantage of by women will become gendered, will become lower status, and will contribute to the gap. And so we need to find policies that would be equally attractive to people of all genders uh, so that uh, we don't end up un un inadvertently trying to help, but actually inadvertently uh, actually creating more, more damage, more segregation than we had before. Thank you. I think the, the fact that you've pointed out around ensuring balance and not, in, not having policies that are one-sided um, is very important going forward. And I'm hoping that everyone, the government, um, corporates, businesses, um, and families and the society can pick one thing from what you said. I think there, there are suggestions and solutions for everyone in, in, in everything you shared. Now, talking about childcare, which is very important um, for families um, as they move back into the workforce, um, what can governments and corporates do to deliver more affordable but high-quality childcare, um, given that we need that if both parents um, are going to be engaged in formal work? Well, the answer to that question about childcare is really going to differ across countries because different countries already have different kinds of supports in place. So, for example, in Scandinavia, we they have a combination of uh, heavily supported parental leave for the first year of life, both uh, for all parents, men and women and people of all genders. Um, and then they have state subsidized uh, childcare that starts at the age of one. So that's a model, the Scandinavian model, which I think is in some ways the gold standard. By the way, that doesn't fix everything, because if you still look at, you know, corporate Sweden or corporate Norway, you won't necessarily see a lot of women CEOs or things like that. So it's not like they've 100 percent solved the problem. Um, when you th then look at other countries like Canada, which historically did not have a lot of, of a government support for child care, um, you know, uh, in the province of Quebec, they had it for a number of years. And just recently, in part, I think, inspired by the pandemic, the federal government has launched a $30 billion program that will be worked out with each of the provinces to be able to provide affordable $10 a day uh, child care. And so we need these government subsidies in order to be able to make sure or government support to make sure that child care is affordable for everyone. And we need to be very thoughtful about how that's implemented so that the people who are the poorest, who have the fewest resources are the ones who can get the, you know, the most advantage because $10 a day is, you know, maybe very affordable for a middle-class family, but maybe not so affordable for a family earning the minimum wage. Uh, and so we really need to design policies that benefit the poorest among us. And unfortunately, you know, these policies then have to come from the uh, de democratically elected uh, officials, and that means they're trying to express the views of the polity. And so we as societies have to agree that investing in child care is really one of the most important things that we can do. And we know from research that early good early childhood education, and we say child care, it's not just babysitting children while parents work. It's really about educating young children. When we think about the impact of good early childhood education, we see that children are much more likely 
to graduate high school, much less likely to commit crimes, much more likely to go to university, much less likely to live in poverty over their lifetime. So we know that the impact of good early childhood education has huge ramifications for society and for the economy over decades. And yet we underinvest in that as a society. And so we have to, as societies, really decide that this is a primary uh, responsibility of society and a primary priority just like we think about investing in infrastructure for roads or or public transportation, we need to equally value the, the care infrastructure that actually makes our economy uh, function and helps people be good functioning members of our society. So that's what needs to happen. And the solution will be different in every country. In developing economies with a uh, few resources, there may need to be local entrepreneurial solutions that are very different from the kinds of solutions we might propose in a Canadian, U.S. or Scandinavian context, for example. Thank you. Thank you. Context matters um, as we look at these policies. And you've touched on a number of policy areas we can consider. And really now, as we move towards um, economic recovery from COVID-19 and as economies just really try to start planning their policies, how can we bring in gender mainstreaming into all of these planning processes? I mean, people have talked about a feminist recovery and, and, and how gender mainstreaming would make a difference. Um, can you just tell us what this would look like in practice and, and, and really just wrap up with this, this important takeaway for us to, to close out on this? Well, thank you. Yes. Uh, so the Institute for Gender and the Economy, which I run, uh, co-authored with the YWCA Canada, the world's first national feminist economic recovery plan. And uh, so your question about what does it take to, I mean, you can call it gender mainstreaming uh, or you can call it feminist recovery. What is it going to really take to think about these issues uh, in, in a way that is going to create recovery for everyone? Because a lot of times policies that are put in place, we see this in the United States when they had their big debate about, you know, the the plans that President Biden proposed and what got stripped out of it was all the support for the care economy and what got kept in was all the support for roads and bridges. And that is a gendered policy. It sounds neutral. Roads and bridges sounds neutral, but actually it's a policy that actually is going to exacerbate inequalities in our society. So what we suggest, what I certainly suggest is conducting what we call gender analytics. You could call this gender-based analysis. Um, gender analytics is about taking an intersectional gender-based lens on every policy, every decision, and understanding what are the potentially differential impacts of those. And actually thinking about designing your policies or activities or practices around the most marginalized and the most vulnerable in society. Because if you do that, everyone will benefit. But if you design your policies around the needs of the elite, then the elite will benefit and no one else will. And so it's really a complete you know, shift in frames in thinking about how you, you, to make a recovery that really benefits everyone, you have to focus on the most marginalized. And we tend not to do that in our society. We tend to neglect the most marginalized. For example, trying to inflate our way out of the big expenses that governments spent in the pandemic to support businesses and to support individuals. Inflation is completely regressionary. It, it, it hurts the poorest among us, whereas taxes, you know, especially taxes designed correctly, would actually lead the richest among us to support, to, to, to give back a fair share to society. And yet, we don't end up thinking about these kinds of policies like taxes and inflation as having a gender angle, but they do. And so I really think if we're going to have a fair recovery, we need to always be asking this question. And in the UK, which you know obviously is a very important uh, audience for you, being where you're located, the UK Women's Budget Group is just a fantastic group that actually is doing these kinds of analyses to think about the impacts of different policies. And having voices like that heard by policymakers, both in the corporate world as well as in the government world, I think is really crucial for designing uh, a recovery that is going to benefit everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Dr. Kaplan, for joining us today. We appreciate you taking out the time. We've learned so much. Um, I think this is almost like a policy, a gender policy class for us um, as a school. And we really thank you. 
Now I'll pass the mic off to my colleague Swati, who will share more about women's participation in the informal sector with our second guest. Hi there, I'm Swati Ramprasad. We will now take a deep dive into some of the challenges women face in informal sectors of the global economy. The term informal labor sector refers to parts of the economy that are neither taxed nor regulated by governments. The International Labor Organization estimates that about 2 billion workers, or over 60% of the world's adult labor force, hold informal sector jobs. While most prevalent in developing contexts, informal work makes up a sizable share of GDP in some advanced economies as well. The COVID-19 pandemic hit the informal sector especially hard, as the majority of informal work is contact-intensive jobs like domestic work or bus driving that was unable to be conducted remotely. Female informal sector workers saw their jobs hit the hardest. As women make up 80% of domestic workers globally, 72% lost their jobs as a result of the pandemic. And in sub-Saharan Africa, 41% of female-owned businesses closed as compared to 34% of male-owned businesses. To learn more about COVID-19's impact on the informal sector, the specific safety needs of female workers, and the importance of properly valuing women's informal work within public policy, I will be joined by Sanchita Mitra. Sanchita is the National Coordinator for Seva Bharat, a national federation of Seva organizations of women working in India's informal economy. The federation seeks to further informal workers' rights, livelihoods, financial independence, education, health, and social security, and relies on a decentralized leadership model helmed by female community leaders. Sanjita, welcome to the Oxford Policy Pod and happy International Women's Month. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Swati. Could you introduce us a little to Seva Bharat, the context where you work and the organization's mission? My name is Sanchita. I'm the National Coordinator of Seva Bharat, and I'll tell you a bit about the organization. I'll take you to 1972, when uh, Seva was formed as a national union, and this was all happening in Gujarat. And uh, we thought of getting these women who were working in the informal economy uh, to get together. The reason was these women did not have a collective voice. There was no policy catered towards the informal sector, men or women. And women were uh, worse because they, they had additional uh, responsibilities, their visibility was low, and they, their access to markets, uh, economy was uh, much lesser than compared to men. So we formed a union thinking that the union would be a structure where women's voices could be represented but uh, uh, normally in a union, uh, all these people who work, they have an employer. So the first issue when we went to register was asked, who are the employers? Now, since they were informal workers, they did not have any employer. And um, uh, they also had changed their occupation. They had to change occupation over the year because they were very poor. So they used to pick up any occupation. So we actually uh, then got this registration with a lot of uh, issues and challenges. But then the express need, the first express need that the women uh, said was that they should have an access to a financial system where they could keep their money and savings safely. And each woman was a worker. Each woman was an economically active person. They also wanted a place where they could borrow because they had a lot of uh, interest that they used to pay for in the informal way of borrowing. So the bank was formed. Slowly, slowly, the women started expressing their needs. And as a result of which, we gave them skilling, we gave them access to markets. We saw health was also one issue. Uh, otherwise, their income would form, fall. Then we also ensured that they have uh, access to social security. But since this was formed uh, on based on Gandhian principle, there were many other Gandhi institution, Gandhian institutions in India who also wanted to replicate this model. So soon, the Seva started being formed in other places of India, and this was becoming a big movement. And in 1984, we thought that one organization needs to actually anchor all these growing Sevas. And that is how Seva Bharat was formed with the mission that it will carry on this uh, movement and it will nurture all the growing sevas in the informal economy 
and it will have a collective voice of these women at the national level for all the policies. I'd like to discuss the disproportional financial and health-related impact of COVID-19 for women in the informal work settings. Um, As we know, the pandemic led to a high number of job losses in sectors largely occupied by women, and lockdowns and school closures meant that the additional burden of care work was often passed to women also. So now, two years into the global pandemic, what challenges do women in the informal sector continue to face as they work to regain their security and independence? And how has Seva Bharat's work uh, changed to meet women's needs as a result of the pandemic? So I'll just give you a little background of who are these women whom we are talking about and who are these women who are members of Seva. Uh, So in 1819, the economic survey said that uh, 93% of the workers or the workforce are in the informal sector. And out of this, 95% are women. So you know the proportion of women in this informal sector, which means many of them are invisible, many of them do not have access. Now in Seva, uh, these women become members and we see that most of them are who are entrepreneurs are into nano or micro entrepreneurs. And they work uh, sometimes also within the family. And uh, within this, we see many are into trade. So the trade could be street vendors, could be small shop owners. Few of them are into manufacturing, so they could be weavers, could be food processors. And many of them are into service like construction workers or uh, care work. And a huge proportion of them are in agriculture. Now, there is a lot of, uh, there is a policy for the micro, small, medium sector, but these women which we are talking about, uh, the women-owned enterprises are only 20% of the total enterprises. And out of this, the 84.7% are very small. Their annual turnover is less than 5,000 pounds. So you can imagine how small. So now these sections, and these, uh, this section actually are the people who were very badly hit by the pandemic. Of course, pandemic did affect everybody, but these were people which uh, special attention was needed because otherwise they would fall to abject poverty or they would become uh, daily laborers. So we worked around them and, these, and there are about 13 million workers out of which 77 are women in this micro-entrepreneurship world. Now, these women use local resources, local people, and um, we also call them because they see that the environment is taken care of. They, we also say that they are the nurturance of economy. Now, with COVID, what happened was most of the work was affected. So uh, they, for the weavers, they did not get any orders. For the service providers, like the domestic workers, they were asked not to come home. Uh, for work and they did not get any compensation for that for the street vendors they had no access to market the small shops were closed so we saw that they faced a lot of income uh, problem and in the five to for first five to six months they had exhausted all their savings and uh, we normally see what happens is uh, their savings, whatever they earn, 82% goes into, 82% actually went into hospitalization. So whatever savings they had, they had to use it up in hospitalization or into any kind of consumption. So what we, uh, from the savers point perspective, what we did during the COVID is we thought that there should be two parts. One was to keep them resilient. The other was to keep them growing. So growing was something aspirational at that time because to keep them resilient itself was very difficult. So the first uh, uh, understanding that we got from our people was of hunger because people could not access the uh, public distribution system. There was um, social distancing. There was uh, resources was very limited. And uh, even the ration cards that they had, many of them did not have ration card. And that time the government had also not announced any alternate way. So that was the time when we tried to give them relief materials um, in the fields. 
And it was very difficult because we had to list the women. And this was the time whenever field workers and field uh, leaders got together and made a list of more, the most vulnerable out of this largely vulnerable population. And uh, so food packets were distributed, medical kits were distributed. In the second pandemic, we felt that we had also understood the situation. We thought that access to doctors was very important. And in this way, it was very important that they get access to teleconsultancy. And we quickly taught them how to use teleconsultancy. You see, I'm talking about women who also do not own a smartphone in the, uh, of her own. So this teleconsultancy also we introduced. So health was uh, given, food was given, but we also saw that the government started coming up with various schemes, various uh, injections of financial injections. So, but the problem here is also awareness. So through our own uh, so resource centers, which are very much in the heart of the communities, which we call Seva Shakti Kendras, we started spreading this awareness and we started linking with the government schemes. So parallelly, a lot of linkages happened. In Delhi, we worked with the government and many other uh, civil society organizations in uh, giving them food kits, giving them medical kits. So this was the part, was was a resilient part. Then we also went to the growth part. The growth part needed additional thing, like they needed more training on digital. Digital was coming in a big way. Digital and financial literacy, entrepreneurship development, we gave them access to market and also online market. A lot of women were also given additional skills so that they could access the market in a better way. They could produce catalogs for their products and um, they were given access to credit. So many of the Seva financial institutions also uh, came forward and given gave them loans. And what about childcare during the COVID-19 um, pandemic? Yeah. Even without the pandemic, what we see is uh, the women have at least five hours dedicated to unpaid work at home. And child and because of child care and elderly care, many of the women are not as productive as they could. There, there is this child care centers, which are the Anganwadi centers, but they and during COVID it would not open or it opened at a minimum time. So Seva also runs childcare centers. So uh, for the childcare, uh, of course, during the extreme wave situation, we could not open the childcare centers, but the childcare centers have started opening. Women are keeping their children there. So where we have the childcare center, Seva's own childcare centers, women have started bouncing back to a more productive way. In other places, we are advocating with the government to increase the childcare uh, centers opening time because each hour means more productive hours for them. And in the absence of any childcare, we see not only the nutrition, but uh, small, very small children from infant to five, they suffer from nutrition, malnutrition, but five onwards and all, they also uh, um, are, um, they have a risk of sexual abuse. Uh, so um, there is a, I mean, the, the needs are different. You know, the nutrition, then safety needs are coming up for the child care centers. So this is a very important component of informal sector workers. So in terms of safety, Seva Bharat seeks to help women acquire a sense of security, both economically and socially. Key to the sense of security is ensuring that working conditions in the informal sector remain safe and workers do not face a threat of physical violence or emotional abuse. How has the issue of women's safety changed over the course of the pandemic? And what policies or outreach efforts have been effective at limiting threats to workers' health and well-being? This is Swati, there is an issue. When women face these problems, they do not speak about it. But when you have a solidarity network, then people gain, the women gain a little courage because they feel ashamed to talk about these things. Before the pandemic, we had various sessions on uh, prevention of sexual harassment at workplace. Now, Swati, the workplace for the informal sector is also something difficult to establish. What is the workplace of a farmer woman? What is the workplace of a woman who works from home? Uh, but uh, then we started making these women aware and we also encouraged women to come up with their own stories or other stories. So the groundwork was there a bit, but during the pandemic, 
there were also issues of domestic violence that we heard. So that time, very um, proactively, we started giving them uh, helpline numbers. We started doing counseling sessions. And since all our programs, though most of it is centered, uh, means everything centered around women, but many of the programs reach the family. So there is always a direct connection uh, with the family members, male family members. So that is how we also communicated with the male family members about uh, any kind of uh, harassment. But the challenge here is wherever there is an act or a legislation, the implementation and the formulation of rules becomes difficult. So parallelly, we are also trying to help the government officials to form those committees of which locally, which can look after all these complaints. So the complaints also must come to kind of a forum. That forum is also missing. So we are trying to address that. But Till now, the Shakti Kendras that we I was talking about, Seva Shakti Kendras, are also places where women can open up. It's, it's a very uh, comfortable place for these poor women to come and talk about their challenges. The one challenge could be this. So transitioning again a little bit to financial security, what are the goals and activities of your financial inclusion programs? And have you seen the way the women engage in these programs change since COVID? Due to the government's uh, programs, intensive programs of uh, Jandhan, uh, most of the women have a bank account. This was a big issue. The women did not have a banking bank account uh, initially. But what we found during the pandemic, because the government was keen to transfer some money uh, um, for uh, the pandemic as a relief in the accounts, what we feared that these uh, women are so poor that the Jamdan account had become all passive. So even if you have an account, I'm bringing to this question, even if you have kind of a facility, the usage of all the facilities is also a challenge. Because women are so small, uh, so little, and they find it very intimidating to go to a bank to uh, do, do the deposit. They find all men there, and the uh, atmosphere is uh, very formal. So that was one difficulty that we faced during the pandemic. But in our own institutions, what happened? We also have our financial institutions. We saw that these women uh, were not being able to pay back the loans. So we designed the products, gave them moratorium, and which held them in actually bouncing back. And uh, they became, uh, all the delinquent loans were starting, uh, started becoming, um, they, they, was, they started paying off regularly. Then slowly, slowly, they started also savings. So we actually designed a few products. We designed a few processes. We changed all these processes. Again, Swati, by hearing the voices of the women, what they need, because they have representations in the form of board members in these uh, institutions. So that is how many of the things were designed in our own, uh, own uh, financial institutions. But with the government, we did a lot of lobbying for financial inclusion. And what did that lobbying look like? Yeah, we actually are into like giving uh, loans. Uh, when I was talking about enterprises, now our enterprises or women's enterprises, unfortunately, stay very small. When they, they cannot grow because of various other factors. One is access to additional capital. So this is also we are trying to highlight with uh, proper case studies, proper evidences that one of the factors which uh, which pulls the women's enterprises down is access to formal finances. It does not allow them to grow. So they are so small. So we are advocating the special kind of schemes to help women's enterprises. So the, they have to look at the women's enterprises in a different angle, be more encouraging and more empathetic towards them. Labor policy tends to neglect and devalue the contributions of informal workers. What can be done to ensure that informal work, especially the work done by women, is properly understood and valued within local, national, and international policy? One issue that we face when we talk to the women, they themselves do not value their work so much. Many of the women that we meet on a daily basis if you ask them, what work do you do? Many of them say that we do not do any work. And if it is a family work, they just cannot see what work they do. So in any kind of a survey, 
they are lost because the surveys are also not probing surveys. So many of the data that is collected is also very, very undervalued, underreported about women's participation. Um, so one is we want to identify these women, the, the lowest in the pyramid, that she herself identifies herself as a worker. The government policy of having that e-shram portal, but which is the labor portal, which happened after during the pandemic when a lot of migrant workers were brought to the limelight. So we are trying to bring all these women registered under the labor portal because it's quite white, anybody in the informal sector. So once uh, the woman is registered, so during the course of the registration also I noticed, I actually was during this process. So she was saying that I am such a worker. So that kind of recognition of her own work came to her. So when you have this work, so one is she understands what are the schemes that are available to facilitate her work because there are a few schemes that can facilitate. So there are multiple other identities also she produced. We start with almost no identity of the women, like no Aadhaar card, no caste certificate, no birth certificate or not. So identity at various levels and identity as a worker comes last. So this is one we are trying to. Uh, there is another policy that the government has introduced is um, uh, about, uh, this is the Udyam portal where entrepreneurships, uh, entrepreneurs are re uh, registered. So we are also trying to register these women into this e-portal uh, of uh, labor. Now these two has to be linked and I think the government is also trying to get this, uh, the labor and the entrepreneurs portals. After they're linked, we will also find out what, what policies, what social security schemes that they have. So there is a lot of education and awareness building, but it uh, the way that Seva does is uh, we have a cadre of grassroots leaders whom we train and they train the other people in their communities. So it's a network of the leaders who are actually the trainers in the community. And do these schemes vary at the national versus the local level? There are schemes which are at a national level, which means it is applicable to all all parts of India. And the states also bring out additional scheme. So during the pandemic, many of the states have uh, brought additional packages uh, for, for their uh, people. And uh, there is also a talk about uh, one nation, one ration, because you see in our country, many of the not so developing uh, developed uh, states have a lot of migrants which go to the developed uh, states. And when they go there, they lose all their social security and they also lose access to subsidized food. So we are trying to bring these people together, uh, the ration, but there are complexity because the food habits are not similar. Uh, the cards needs to be digitalized, but the process is being set. So uh -huh. to answer your question, there are national level policies as well as state level, different, different policies. And what is your organization's attitude towards, you know, the international sector and how, you know, this work is recognized and formalized within the international community? Uh, I'll just again go back to history a bit. When we started in 72, we actually were not aware what was happening around the world. So um, at one point, our founder, Ilaben, got the Maxese Award and we were also thrown open to the world where we understood what we are talking about, the um, agricultural workers, domestic workers, construction workers, vendors are also international uh, issues. So together when we worked, so the voices from the national went to the international. So at one point we had actually understood that there are lots of women sitting at home and taking up small contractors work, artisanal work, etc who are not even counted. So we did a small counting and showed it to the government. So we termed them as home-based worker. So home-based workers is actually a term which is recognized internationally and by the ILO. So uh, so this these platforms are in, important. We have SEVA, uh, uh, Seva uh, supported uh, some organizations like VEGO, and HomeNet South Asia, which work at uh, international level or at the South Asia uh, level for a particular sector, for various other sectors. So those are also partner organizations. 
Part of your Federation's work and vision is grassroots female-led leadership. Why is it important for women to serve as leaders and advocates in their communities? And do you have any examples of leadership that come to mind? Actually, SEWA is about leadership. The, and the philosophy of SEWA is women have to be at the center. And women have to be at the center of all the strategies. She has to be part of, she has to contribute to the strategy. So women are trained, means we actually recognize some leaders and mostly they are natural leaders. So when we find these natural leaders, we also give them trainings about government access, their rights, uh, how to write letters to the government, how to mobilize women together. So these leaders um, are nurtured. So right from the very beginning, even the Seva Bank that I was talking about was the dream of a particular leader who, who expressed her need. It is very important that these women, because they are the voices, and once, and they are the people who can express their issues. When she expresses the issues, many of the time she also gives us a way or gives us a strategy. And when her voice is heard by the highest authority or the policymakers, it creates a lot of impact. So we are also trying to make a direct connection between the leaders and the policymakers. And it is really, really impactful. So last question, how do female support networks encourage women on their journeys towards self-reliance and personal agency? It's the voice that I've been talking about. When she's alone, then she does not have a voice because there are a lot of other factors which will not allow her to speak. So one is the solidarity network allows her to speak. Second thing is economically also, when they get together, you have economies of scale. You have visibility in the market. You are recognized as an agency for marketing, for selling. And um, when, when you are also organized, the government also sees that uh, it also brings it to the government's notice, like those empowerment uh, centers, uh, SSKs. So these are the centers which the government is also using to advocate for their uh, schemes to see that most are re reaching to the, it's a win-win situation for the government, for our women. But these networks definitely provide a kind of empowerment, both from her point of view of self-reliance and for full employment, because it brings out visibility and visibility towards the outside world. It brings out the inner strength of her. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time to tell us about your organization's important work. And once again, happy International Women's Month. Thank you. I also end with a happy International Day note. Thank you. On behalf of my co-host, Ujunwa Ojemini and I, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Oxford Policy Pod in celebration of International Women's Month. We hope you learn more about the structural barriers women are facing to economic empowerment in different contexts and the policies that governments can implement to break these barriers down and promote inclusive growth. Our sincerest thanks to Professor Sarah Kaplan and Sanchita Mitra for sharing their ex expertise with us. If you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe to Oxford Policy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at Oxford Policy Pod underscore and on Twitter at Oxford Policy Pod. The executive producers for this season of OPP are Reed Leesk and Livy Biha. And this episode was produced by Grace Minor, Ujunwa Ujemini, Swati Ramprasad, Letitia Kamal, and Srinathya Nagarajan. We hope to see you again next week for our episode on climate change and national security in celebration of Earth Month. Thanks for joining.